0: So there's this concept of the uh, contact hypothesis or intergroup contact theory that really demonstrates that the most impactful factor for people changing their attitudes towards being more accepting of a marginalized identity is exposure. And so right now we're in a situation where there's really, we're out of precipice. I really think non-monogamy has entered uh, into the Overton window which is a concept to talk about how policy change is actually possible now in a, in a way that it never has been, that it's really important for those people that do have that privilege to lean in to, to take that step of coming out to more people, because I think that it is one of the most important linchpins of this movement progressing and moving forward. Welcome
1: to the multi Amory Podcast. I'm Jace.
2: I'm Emily. And I'm Dedeker.
3: We believe in looking to the future of relationships, not maintaining the status quo of the past.
2: Whether you're monogamous, polyamorous, swinging, casually dating, or if you just do relationships differently, we see you and we're here for you.
1: On this episode of the Multiamory Podcast, we're talking about the current legal and political landscape for polyamorous people, and we are joined by two guests who are experts on this very subject. Dr. Heath Scheckinger is a distinguished psychologist, scholar, and educator in the field of relationship structure diversity. Over the past 15 years, his work has delved into the challenges of monogamy, infidelity, and the emergence of diverse family and relationship configurations. He's a founding co-chair of the American Psychological Association Division 44 Committee on Consensual Non-Monogamy, and is a co-founder of the Polyamory Legal Advocacy Coalition. In addition to all of those roles, he offers consultation services and maintains a private practice in the San Francisco Bay Area. And then we're also joined by Diana Adams Esquire, who was last on our show in 2017, which is I can't even believe it's been that long. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) On episode 134. Wow. Uh, Diana Adams is an international legal leader in advocacy for queer family forms beyond the romantic dyad. Diana is the executive director of the Chosen Family Law Center, a nonprofit advocating for diverse family structures, and they run a boutique law firm providing mediation services nationwide. For those hoping to negotiate intentional or polyamorous families. Heath and Diana, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thanks for having
0: us. Quite a mouthful. <laughs> <laughs>
1: well,
2: I mean, such accolades, so impressive. Indeed. Like, I'm so excited to delve into so many questions to ask the two of you today.
3: First off, the two of you actually contacted us, first you, Heath, and then Diana kind of got roped in as well. But you wanted to discuss some of the work that you've both been doing on passing legal rights for polyamorous people. So can you first just talk about that, what that work consisted of, and also sort of just what the legal landscape is currently for people in polyamorous relationships?
0: Sure. Yeah, I can talk a little bit about, we were excited to share, I think a number of your guests may already know, but we were excited to share a bit about some of the progress that we've seen really in the past two plus years. Starting with in the city of Somerville in two thousand and twenty one, the first plural domestic partnership ordinance passed, which is the first time in history that people are allowed to get in a domestic partnership with more than one person. And Diane and I and our colleagues at the Polyamory Legal Advocacy Coalition, were excited to jump in and to offer support in legislative drafting and reviewing and updating that legislation. and then also offering support in passing the first plural domestic partnership ordinances in the cities of Cambridge, as well as Arlington. And then here just recently, we also collaborated with our colleagues at the Organization for Polyamory and Ethical Non-Monogamy, as well as a couple other local groups, uh, including Diana's Law Firm, the Chosen Family Law Center, in passing the first non-discrimination ordinance in the history of the United States, supporting plural relationships. But not just non-monogamous relationships, but we were intentionally inclusive to include blended families, chosen families by choice, as well as ace and ace identified individuals.
2: Wow. Okay. So I want to roll back a little bit. um, And it's so funny because maybe our listeners may have spotted that there was just a big feature in the New York Times all about Somerville specifically, which was really interesting to read. I want to roll back to the domestic partnership thing. And Dan, maybe you can weigh in on this a little bit, but I kind of want to go back to 101. Okay, so now it's legal in this particular area for you know people to have a domestic partnership with more than one person. What does that offer? What does that not offer? What does it protect? What does it not protect? How is it different from a classic traditional legal marriage?
4: I'm happy to share some more information as lawyer on the team here, and <laughs> domestic partnership is a legal family institution that started with same-sex partnership in the 90s and was a powerful institution for giving people an alternative to marriage. But with that, it ended up having a lot of creativity about people who were beyond same-sex couples who entered into domestic partnerships. So we ended up seeing inadvertently cities passing domestic partnerships and then also welcoming two best friends or widows to uh, get domestic partnered. Um, And we realized that there were a, a tremendous number of people who were basically in caregiving relationships and partnerships that wanted to be able to have legal status with one another. And I think that's something that's really powerful about the institution of a domestic partnership. And what it really means is that you're each other's special legal someone. But unlike marriage, domestic partnership doesn't mean that you're becoming a social welfare state of two, which I rail on and on about as a feminist and queer legal theory person that basically we're privatizing a lot of what in Europe and in other places would be social welfare state kinds of needs um, of financial dependency into the institution of marriage. And so that's something people need to realize. And I think it makes marriage actually stronger to have a second option of domestic partnership that with domestic partnership, you could, you know, cross a border in a pandemic to be together or visit each other in the hospital, have a, a formalized legal status as a close family member, but not necessarily take on each other's debts. And not necessarily if one of you buys a house, you co-own it by default, which is what marriage law would suggest. And so I think it's a really powerful institution with quite a bit of creativity. And one thing to add with
0: that as well is that there's not a residence requirement, right? So I think it's important for the listeners to know who may be in a different city in the United States as well, that there's nothing stopping them from taking their tool. And as long as there's the consent of everyone involved, you too can formalize your domestic partnership with any of your partners. Um, and then head back to your city. And we're curious to see what might unfold legally right in the years to come when people then might take up arguments with their workplace, et cetera, or in their cities that they're in down the road.
1: Yeah, that's something I was curious about too. And maybe you're going to speak to that, Diana, but just that question of how does that work with states, you know, honoring marriages and partnerships from other states that might have different laws around that?
4: So this is one piece I want to make a note on, which is that um, some domestic partnerships are city specific, but Heath and I and a team of six people actually drafted these domestic partnership ordinances through Polyamory Legal Advocacy Coalition. So we made sure to draft them without a residency requirement and also a number of features that would make them open to platonic partners, open to people who are um, partners who don't necessarily live in the same household, because that's the reality of polyamorous relationships and caregiving relationships that people don't necessarily live in the same household. Um, It's really powerful that because there isn't a residency requirement, then anywhere else in the U.S., you can go, and I've had clients do this, to Cambridge or to Somerville in Massachusetts and get domestic partnered and then go back to your home state. And a reason that can be helpful is that one of the primary functions of domestic partnership is to be able to share health insurance. And It's absolutely bogus that we have different levels of health insurance care and coverage in this country, but the reality is that we do and that sometimes one partner might have that great tech job health insurance um, or great large company health insurance and then want to be able to share that with a partner. Something that's really special about this ordinance too, which is really revolutionary, is that you could be married to one person and domestic partner to another. This has never happened anywhere else. And wow. so that also represents the reality of the way poly people often live. And so I had a specific situation with a polycule on the West Coast and one of the it was a married couple. And then there was a serious boyfriend who developed a serious health condition. And one of the partners said, I my husband doesn't need my health insurance anymore. My boyfriend really needs my good health insurance. Can we still go? We want to stay married, but we want to go and, and get domestic partnered and then go back and tell my company we want to switch I still only want to cover one partner right now, but I would like to switch which one. And that worked. So that is the kind of reason that people want sometimes to be able to sure that they have this formalized legal status. Um, And as somebody who is stuck in Germany during the pandemic away from close people in the U.S., it's also really powerful that you could potentially cross a border in a pandemic to be together or have that kind of close relationship so that you could visit somebody in the hospital in that kind of crisis moment.
2: Well, so I want to ask more about the healthcare policy part of this as well. But again, I, I just want to reiterate that, like, so you're saying that we can kind of put together like a polycule tourism package to Somerville to be like, let's all go get our domestic <laughs> partnership, stay in a cute local bed and breakfast support like the queer cafe or whatever. And then we bring it back to, you know, wherever it is that we're living. And then it sounds like Heath, you were kind of implying. And then we just kind of see what the domino effect of that is when we start running into things like trying to switch up health care or trying to switch up who's on the health insurance or running into workplace protections and things like that.
0: That's right. And there's nothing stopping your employer from honoring more than one person being on health care, right? There's certainly parameters in in particular cases, but there's nothing stopping you from asking. At the very least, it gives you that option of choosing which person or uh, in the cases where you are limited to one person who you want on your healthcare. We at least see it as a significant step forward that people are granted that option of getting to choose.
4: Absolutely, and then ultimately, if we are still in this bogus game of health insurance based on a breadwinner kind of model, I would make the argument that if I could have five children and put them on my health insurance, why couldn't I have two partners on my health insurance? Um, Mm -hmm. Ultimately, I would love universal healthcare, but until then, we're gonna be pushing for people to get the care that they deserve and that they need, and it's really going to be up to that particular employer that you work with to see whether they're willing to cover you know, more than one partner, for example. And so I think that's something that will be there if you have a progressive employer It's more likely to work. And also advocates like us are here if you need some advocacy.
0: And one other point with that, I'm really curious about this idea that I've heard that's catching a lot of attention called a lifestyle wallet. So in essence, in this idea, if you have a certain amount of money that is dedicated towards a particular employee... That there's more and more employers that are wanting to give employees the opportunity to bring more of themselves to work. So essentially, let's say that's capped at 100K, that what's keeping you if you want to add a second person to your health insurance, and that has a given amount, that you just take less in your comp. And then you can choose a la carte style, which benefits that you want to opt in on. I know there's an increasing number of employers that are looking into those options, because then that creates more options for groups like the polyamorous groups that are interested in that, but also multi-generational households or the millions of Americans who just want more flexibility and choosing who they put on their health care.
1: Yeah. It's it's interesting. Now I'm now I'm thinking like, okay, I want to try this with my employer. Like let's all yeah. go. Let's all go. <laughs> Get this done, see how it works. Cause something I've run into a lot with benefits, because I think that's always the the initial objection is the, wait, so now you want your employer to pay for a bunch more people. But then when I think about my health insurance, so Dedeker is on my health insurance because I have a tech job, like you were talking about, and they don't cover any of her coverage anyway. I just get to have her on that plan, which is still better than if she bought it as an individual. Um, but like we're paying for it, so yeah, why why not be able to add more people? And now I really want to try and see see what they would say.
2: Yeah. So with the lifestyle wallet thing, I mean, so would it work in the sense, so it's kind of like if the employer is thinking about it, we're allocating a certain amount of money to each employee. But like if there's an employee who knows, I'm not going to be taking maternity leave. Maybe I'm I'm not going to have children or I can't have children. The idea that you could kind of change the arrangement of what you take from the buffet as far as not only the type of benefits, but like how many people and which people you would extend that to.
0: Yes, offering more flexibility in which benefits that you are opting in and out of based on your particular situation. Right. Mm. Okay. Mm.
2: So that's actually a good segue to also talk about things like non-discrimination clauses and like workplace protections. Like what's the current status of that and what are we seeing?
4: In terms of non-discrimination, we just passed the first non-discrimination ordinance in Somerville that would be based on being polyamorous or whatever your family structure is. And there's a lot of symbolic weight there. In the specific city of Somerville, are people as concerned about non discrimination? Perhaps not. But that also comes with intersectional privilege issues. And so while I might not feel uncomfortable as somebody that is a white professional owning my own business, there are many people where cl- class and race are also going to be playing in to discrimination factors. And so the non discrimination ordinance was also related to policing, also related to um, healthcare as well as employment situations, and housing, and not being denied an apartment, for example. And I think it's really Mm. important that we realize that this has an impact beyond Somerville, because just as passing these domestic partnership laws that were for multi-partner in Massachusetts had these ripple effects, for example, that in New York City, they expanded the definition of family for passing on your rent-stabilized apartment, and specifically mm-hmm. referenced what had happened in Massachusetts, that there was a basis in law, that this is what the modern family is, especially in a progressive place like New York. And so once we also then passed non discrimination laws, that is a seed that helps remind us of just how many people may not be going to get registered as multi-partner domestic partners because they don't feel safe doing so. Because that, this is something that we still don't have non-discrimination protections for. And this is something that with my law firm since 2007... I've been getting calls regularly from people like us who might assume that they're protected. People like Jace, who work at a tech company and might contact me and say, hey, my employer said I can't march with the polyamory contingent at the Pride Parade. That seems like that's obviously not acceptable. I want to make some sort of complaint. And I have to let them know they can actually do that. And people, even in progressive cities and progressive companies, have been told that they can't mention being polyamorous that it makes other people uncomfortable, that they have a, a photo with two other partners on their desk, that they were had their picture taken at a Polly Pride event. And so it's important that we recognize that discrimination is real. And, and in order to access the benefits of domestic partnership, you need to feel that you're going to be safe, that you can't go get registered as domestic partners and then lose your job about it on Monday at work. Right. So I think that it's important to recognize that. And this is a hope that this is something that will then impact not just other cities, but workplaces, because progressive workplaces have an opportunity to take leadership here, just as they did with same-sex couples, just as they've done with trans healthcare support. There's a real opportunity for employees that work at progressive companies that want to you know, keep courting those progressive employees that want to work there to show just how open they are by adopting these kinds of policies of non-discrimination, which is something that Heath and I work on and are available to support with.
1: Yeah, I actually had a question about that. This has come up for me in a few different conversations, specifically around the the wrongful termination thing. And it sounds like, it sounds like from what you're saying, there's actually a lot of other areas that are maybe more likely to show up, like you were mentioning of saying you shouldn't march in the pride parade or don't have pictures of you with multiple partners, or you need to remove this from your website, or I don't know, something like that, right? That those maybe are more likely than getting fired over it exactly. And my understanding of it is that even if you are in a protected category, that wrongful termination can be a challenging thing to to fight and win. But what I was curious about, though, is in the case of it being related to non-monogamy, if that's also tied in with other parts of your identity, like you mentioned you know, marching in the polyamory float at the Pride Parade, if you also are claiming a queer identity that has to do with being at Pride, does that help your case at all? Or is it kind of, I just, I'm I'm confused about sort of the legal ramifications of when you have these intersecting identities of queerness or gender identity along with non-monogamy.
4: Absolutely. And I would say that first, as you said, proving wrongful termination is incredibly difficult.
3: Especially in like California, right? Or right to work state specifically. A- am I correct on that? I've heard that from my employers who when people say, oh, I was wrongfully terminated, my employers saying this is a right to work state. And so that'll never work. That's never going to be a thing that they can actually claim.
4: It's generally really common that empl- most employees are employment at will and they don't necessarily have a contract. Right. And so you can be fired at any moment and they don't have to tell you why. And so does anybody ever get fired? And do they say it's because you got pregnant and we don't want to pay for it? Hopefully they're smart enough not to do that. We hope that they are stupid enough to say it so that we can get support for the person. But this is one of the reasons I'm not a corporate lawyer is that frankly, what they do at large law firms is that they blanket them. You know, somebody's fired and they say, I think it's because I'm black and I think it's because I'm queer. But they didn't actually say that. I just think, you know, and then, and then they blanket them with motions and look through every time in their email that they did a social email and work time and try to argue that there was a reason they fired them that was not that protected class. So I think it's really difficult to prove because most of the time, if you're denied an apartment or wrongfully terminated, they're not going to tell you why. I applied for 50 apartments in New York City this past year before I was able to get one as an appearing different sex, successful 40 something white couple. Was that because I'm a non-binary and polyamory activist? Probably, at least some of them, and they didn't say that, right? So what's more common in these kinds of employment situations is actually being told something related to, you know, you can't mention that you're polyamorous on your social media profiles. You can't have your picture taken uh, in a public event related to this. And being told that, um, that something about your polyamorous identity these making people uncomfortable. I think if we were going to, in future, extend into non-discrimination with this, having it be part of your queer identity, part of a pride parade event, something that you think of as an orientation is definitely going to be helpful. But right now, we need to make sure that we have the laws and policies in place to start that kind of protection.
3: I'm curious in talking about all of this. First, what are some of those more progressive companies that are out there that are okay with this? And second, if your company isn't progressive, is there anything you can do in instances like this? Because you know, we all live in super progressive places, all, all five of us. And yet there's so much of the world that doesn't or so much of this country specifically that doesn't. And I just wonder, is there anything that they can do?
0: Yeah, I think that to, to start, we, we've started conversations. It's, it's a very nascent conversation, I would say. This is really one of those things that, that, that many orgs don't want to be the first domino to fall. Well, we are. This is even why it's so significant that Somerville passed, because now once that's happened, we can start going back and having these conversations with these organizations and saying, hey, look, now you're not that first domino. Let's go back and let's have that conversation about what this would look like. And Diane and I are in the process of creating resources as well that will help uh, employers that want to go to their employee and say, hey, look, here's an overview of why this is important and what the potential concerns are so that we can have that conversation upfront and really try to open that path for additional organizations to start adopting inclusive policies. And I think it's important to note that it's not just non-discrimination, but but there's also training is incredibly important, having representation. So having uh, representation on your advisory committee, your employee resource groups, uh, benefits is certainly a more complicated one, but there's also self-identification, right? So simply having... Uh, and supporting these organizations in using language where they can start collecting data. Or if you're a client going in to see a patient at a hospital that your, your therapist or your um, provider is asking you and collecting data about your identity so that we can get feedback as well. So there's a number of things that organizations can do. It's not, I think non discrimination is one of the most important ones, but there are many really easy steps that Employers can take that are really low to no cost for them that might mean a lot in terms of attracting and retaining non monogamous talent.
4: What can somebody do if they live in a conservative place as a polyamorous person to protect themselves? I think that's a really difficult question because I've had legal consults with people all over the US, and sometimes um, this is related to child custody cases. I've been involved with hundreds of child custody cases across the country in which people sometimes lose custody of their kids because polyamory is being used against them, which is why the kind of research that Heath is doing and that we're partnering on is so critically important that we can demonstrate in a way now that we couldn't when I started doing that work 16 years ago, that there's nothing non-normative, that there's no about being polyamorous, that this is actually very much within the realm of adult healthy relationships. There's no reason to think that somebody is a sex addict or shouldn't be around children or might make bad parenting choices if they're polyamorous. However, The standards for these kinds of situations are incredibly subjective. And so no matter how many studies I can present now, um, more than we we did before and we still need more, but no matter how many studies I present, um, you're still going to be before in a child custody case, a judge whose standard is the best interest of the child, which is incredibly subjective. And I've had New York judges decide that the best interest of a child is to live in a lesbian collective And I've had conservative judges tell me it's in the best interest of the child that they go to church every Sunday and and live with the parent that does that, right? So living in a conservative place is something that can be really dangerous for people, particularly if they're parents, um, or if they might face something related to employment and polyamory. And so I've had legal consultations with people where one of the things we discuss is whether they have the means to move. And frankly, right now in this current climate, I wouldn't want to be trans or polyamorous, And live in a red state, and many of us don't have the privilege to move. But if you do, I would consider that. Um, But frankly, then, then there's the question of deciding when you have the safety and privilege to feel like you can come out. I have a helpful document about that on my website that I'd be happy to share on safety and coming out as polyamorous. And if people like us that do live in a situation of safety, in which, for example, I'm not going to lose custody of a kid because I'm not having anybody that I'm having a uh, a former partner who is a co-parent that I'm having a dispute with, and I run my own business, I'm not going to get fired, and I live in an aggressive place, and I have the privilege of being a white legal professional, I feel like I have a responsibility to come out because people like us can then raise awareness with that and, and don't face as many of the risks that many of us would with being out.
1: Yeah. That's actually a great segue to something else that we wanted to ask you about. So we recently did an episode about some of the benefits and challenges of coming out. It was a little more focused on kind of the social and emotional ramifications of that, although we did you know, deal a little bit with some of the legal concerns, or at least to be aware of that. And I actually think it could be really helpful to expand on that, I guess, from both sides in terms of what are some of the benefits from a legal standpoint in terms of moving things forward or like the visibility that Heath was mentioning, uh, as well as, you know, what are, I guess, sort of realistic examples of some of the risks that people should be looking at? Because I think sometimes when we just say, evaluate the risks for yourself, it's like, well, where should I look? What what are the key areas? And it seems like you have a lot of experience with that, both of you.
0: Yeah, I can start. I think one, it's, it's important to note that to Diana's point that this is, this is only if people have the privilege, right? I think it's important that we acknowledge that many people are not in a position to come out. But I, I draw a lot of inspiration from the LGBT movement. And I think that really a key turning point of what helped progress the LGBT movement was people like Harvey Milk inviting or asking people that had the privilege to start coming out right? Because we're in a situation where there's so many people that are non-monogamous, right? Up to one in five people have engaged in non-monogamy at one point in their life. A third of Americans in a recent poll indicated that their ideal relationship structure is something other than monogamy. So there's this concept of the uh, contact hypothesis or, or intergroup contact theory that really demonstrates that the most impactful factor for people changing their attitudes towards being more accepting of a marginalized identity is exposure. And so right now we're in a situation where there's really we're out of precipice. I really think non-monogamy has entered uh into the Overton window, which is a concept to talk about how policy change is actually possible now in a in a way that it never has been that it's really important for those people that do have that privilege to lean in to to take that step of coming out to more people, because I think that it is one of the most important linchpins of this movement progressing and moving forward.
4: Um, so, yes, it's socially it, it, it makes a tremendous amount of um, social difference in terms of opening minds when somebody is known personally. Right. We saw this also with the LGBTQ movement that people sometimes describe it as the will and grace effect, that even when MTV shows with with LGBTQ characters or will and grace were aired in other countries, it changed the polling on the status of LGBTQ people and whether you, you thought same-sex marriage could be valid. So really, even seeing the media images is very helpful. But then more so, we saw a tremendous shift in mindset in the U.S. related to the AIDS era and understanding gayness, because people were ha- were, were had to come out because AIDS was something that was then happening throughout the country and throughout communities, and people were finding out that their nephew or that nice man from church were gay. And so we 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 see we saw with that tremendous changes in social attitudes. And legally, they say that sometimes law is about 15 years behind what's happening socially. And right now, we're seeing that tremendous shift toward openness around polyamory. And um, in terms of evaluating, if you really do have the privilege to come out, there are a few things to think about. Number one, if you have any kind of contested child custody situation with a former partner who would be disapproving, that's your most dangerous risk factor. Or if you have very disapproving grandparents and live in a state in which at some point grandparents can intercede and try to get custody um, from a parent and that has happened related to polyamory. And so do you have a co-parent or grandparents that would get involved in a child custody case is factor number one. Factor number two is who your employer is and whether you work for a progressive company that Uh, Whether you live in a conservative place or not, if you work for a national company that has progressive cities as bases, they may not want to take a controversial stance about being negative toward uh, being polyamorous, for example, um, versus if you work for a smaller operation that has conservative values. And then a third factor would be if you have any work related to working with children that could put you under heightened scrutiny about some of the concerns about people who are sexualized with working with children. So you're even more likely if you're a daycare worker, if you uh, are an elementary school teacher to feel like there could be some stress because there might be some backlash from community and parents. Um, and then moreover, the, the general city and the climate that you live in, if you have children who might face harassment at school, if you live in a conservative area, I would think then I, I always say as parents, we need to put our kids first. And so whether you live in a community where that's going to be a factor and not wanting kids to have to keep secrets. So I think some of those are some of the factors. Um, and then of course, the intersectional race and class issues that, that people will face in, in addition to living in a conservative area. Um, and, you know, with that, with those benchmarks, I think that many of the people listening might realize actually some of my fear that I have about coming out isn't being reality tested against that, right? If you are a white professional living in a, in a blue dot city, you probably should think about coming out because you probably have some privilege here and need to be doing that if you feel like you can with safety to help the rest of the community.
1: You know, on this show, we're often talking about things generally, or we're talking about the internal relationship communication side of things, but it's really valuable to have the perspective That the two of you bring from what's actually going on in terms of legal fights or the progress that we're making, hopefully, as a culture and, you know, politically and legally. And we're really excited to keep going with this, but we're going to take a quick break right now to talk about how people can support this show. If you appreciate getting this information and you value the fact that this is available to everybody out there in the world for free, it really goes a long way. If you take a moment to check out our sponsors, if any seem interesting to you, go check them out. But even just listening to them does directly support our show. So thank you so much. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and six one since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? (sighs) Well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now.
4: I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press one. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press two. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandslots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. BGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply.
2: So, you know, you're both talking about sort of feeling into this tipping point, right? Like actually having a sense of there being a sea change happening and... I know it's something that I've loved about the fact that we've been running this show for like almost a decade now is getting to look back, right? And see these turning points and be like, oh yeah, things are different now than it was back in 2014, right? I had this funny moment literally just a couple of weeks ago when Jason and I were on vacation and we went to a spa and there was a Cosmo magazine in the spa and it was the The couples and throuples edition where they had all of these like beautiful photography spreads of like couples and some throuples and like some non-monogamous couples and things like that. And I remember thinking back to when I first started writing my book in like 2015 that one of the pieces of my inspiration that got me really fired up to write a book about non-monogamy was the fact that I picked up a Cosmo and the relationship advice made me sick to my stomach, you know. And so then having this moment 10 years later being like, wow, okay, like a tangible change. So I'm curious to hear from the two of you. I know the two of you are on the forefront of things politically, legally, you know, really making change happen. But I'm curious if you have any personal moments like that that come to mind where you have this sense of like, oh, yeah, there's there's been a change that I can notice here. I've
4: really been struck actually recently Heath and I were just in the New York Times related to the work that we've been doing. And it's an overwhelmingly positive article in the New York Times about places you could move to that are polyamory friendly. Um, And I believe that the article that I was in in 2008 was the first mention of polyamory in the New York Times. And that article, it was in the style section and it was my partner Ed and I, were still together, uh, to, to some of the doubters in that particular article, And it was a generally positive article for 2008. um, But it included lots of elements that were conveying just how much it was a very edgy topic that they didn't want to take too much of an affirmatively positive stance on. And so Mm. they found like a random podunk psychologist that was like, random psychologist on the street says, this will probably never work. They probably just haven't met someone special yet, which isn't even a Psychologist opinion, particularly, right? They were just like, <laughs> we have to include the other side, which is like some random guy says this is a dumb idea. Um and then throughout the article made reference to like seeming like there was an unspoken undercurrent that I was jealous and that oh but not my male partner, mm. which I hadn't said, but it was I think it was because they couldn't imagine that I wasn't jealous. And so, you know, just feeling like the media was was pretty negative then, I've had a long journey since two thousand eight of doing media. I was on The View and I think 2013 and Dr. Drew and Jenny McCarthy were really slut shaming toward me, Um, although I think it's an accomplishment to get slut shamed by Jenny McCarthy. But it was acceptable on The View when I was there as an attorney. I was asked by Jenny McCarthy if I asked men's names before they had sex with me.
2: Whoa! Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. Jesus Christ! Okay. Yeah, I, I was
4: there to talk about my law firm. And hi, I'm arguing federal court cases related to this topic. And I'm admitted to practice at the United States Supreme Court on this topic. And why would you ask me that question on television in front of a live studio audience? Right. Um, and so right. it was acceptable for this to be treated as an absolute mockery. And that's what most of the media was up until I would say the past seven years. We've just really been seeing this shift this gradual shift that I think has accelerated. And now we're seeing fewer of these sensationalized articles. We're seeing more positive media depictions. We're seeing situations in which sometimes the person is polyamorous on a TV show and that's not the focus. And so that's, I think, really exciting.
0: Yeah. And in terms of my story, you know, I I ended up leaving my master's of ministry program to pursue a PhD in counseling psychology because it felt like that there was this oppression toward people that experience same-sex attraction. I started, uh, actually fell in love with my best guy friend and I was like, okay, maybe I need to go a different direction with my career. But when I got into my PhD program in counseling, I noticed that it felt like a very similar oppression when I started having conversations about the capacity to be drawn to loving more than one person, Mm. right? And so that's what launched me on this journey of starting to research around non-monogamy and then in 2014, my colleague, Dr. Amy Moores, who we co-found the first task force on consensual non-monogamy, we wrote a paper essentially calling for the American Psychological Association to do something to address this issue. Little did we expect in 2018, shortly after we graduated and finished our postdocs, that we would be the ones that were taking up that, that charge. And we really, it was, it was kind of a, a, a turnkey moment for us as well of, oh my gosh, we can actually do something about this. Really being grateful for uh, standing on the shoulders of giants and all the people that really laid the groundwork. But we were, it really shifted our perspective and, and really is a sign of how things were starting to change when we received uh, unanimous support from all 13 executive board members of the LGBT division of the American Psychological Association for us to start the first task force and then three years later, we were proved to be a permanent committee within that subdivision of the American Psychological Association, inferring ongoing representation within that subdivision of the American Psychological Association. And then since then, it's, it's just really been different. As Diana said, where we're not being, uh, laughed at when we're having these conversations, but when we are being reached out to, for example, we just did a talk with the ldvp subdivision of the american bar association right and we're also in the process of there's a lot of support to where it seems like that there's a high possibility in the next year or two to pass the first resolution or position statement within the american psychological association demonstrating support for consensual non-monogamy right it's not the same as back when being gay was removed from the dsm but there's a lot of parallels to Uh, us in this movement. And that's why I'm really excited and passionate about continuing in addition to on the municipal front, but also doing a lot of work in healthcare as well.
2: Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more specifically? I mean, I know that um, it seems like the APA, like this particular Mm -hmm. task force is doing a lot from what I can see, but can you just give at least a sprinkling to our listeners of what what you're working on?
0: Sure. Yeah. So um, Amy and I have been really ambitious and we're really excited back in 2018, we put together a think tank. Again, it was referred to as a task force um, because they start with a temporary task force for three years. And that we established a a group of 40 psychologists, educators, lawyers, and graduate students that focused on uh, supporting research, education, and clinical practice regarding consensual non-monogamy. And since then, we've done quite a bit. In addition to establishing a permanent committee, we created empirical resources for medical and mental health providers that are the first of their kind. So if you want a resource or want help talking to your medical provider or your psychotherapist to kind of normalize non-monogamy, we created these resources that you can utilize in, in that uh, situation. Also, we helped psychology today and other therapist directories add non-monogamy to their therapist directory. So it makes it easier to find a therapist who uh, has experience in this area And in addition, we've also created a hub for different resources and are continuing to add and work on that. So if you're a professor in Nebraska and are wanting support, creating a talk on non-monogamy that you have access to those resources. We also passed or wrote the first guideline in support of consensual non-monogamy in these practice guidelines that are designed for same-sex relationships. So we passed the first guideline in support of non-monogamy in that as well.
2: Yeah. So I'm curious about, I mean, because I think what we see in the landscape now, specifically within healthcare and mental healthcare is, at least my perspective is this, you know, this kind of slow snowballing of more and more professionals who are maybe open to taking on non-monogamous clients. You know, I think that for myself, working with my own clients, you know, I, I go through swaths of like clients who come to me who've had like a bad experience with a different professional, right? But that I have noticed that changing over the years from I think even just as recently as five years ago, it was, oh, yeah, we tried to go to a couples therapist or I tried to talk to my therapist about it. They were very negative. They were they really discouraged me. They were very judgy to it started to shift to maybe something slightly more neutral of like, OK, they're not judgy, but they're asking a lot of questions. And I'm spending a lot of my therapy time that I'm paying for just kind of teaching them about how my relationships work. To what I've noticed more now is more, no, my therapist is supportive. They're just kind of afraid to talk about it because they don't know much. So, right. I mean, when you look at the landscape of professionals out there right now, professionals entering the field, what do you think is needed right now? Like in your ideal world, is it about every professional being able to get a certain amount of training? Like, what are your thoughts?
0: Yeah, we looked into the possibility of there being Uh, standards that required therapists to, uh, receive training, but there's nothing like that. There's even no standards for psychotherapists to receive training on LGBTQ issues. This is why I think it's so important that we are working on, uh, in the professional associations that oversee the mental health spaces. And especially we thought it was important to strategically work within the American Psychological Association to pass policies that indicate support for consensual non-monogamy, right? Because we therapists, just as everyone else is, is subject to what are the societal perceptions of this issue. And as this starts gaining attention and, and more social support, that progress that we're gonna see that you reference is gonna happen. But we still think that it is incredibly important to work from the top, if you will, and have these professional associations that oversee the field take official physical positions and acknowledge the now mountains of data and research demonstrating that there's clear stigma, that there's impact of that stigma and that there's tangible steps that we can do at the very least by passing non-discrimination uh, policies, um, encouraging psychotherapists to be non-stigmatizing uh, and open minded, but also that we're, we're following it up with real clear and tangible forms of data collection as well. So even encouraging the field to gather data is another thing, because one of the top microaggressions that, that people experience when going into optotherapists is a therapist simply assuming that they are monogamous, right? So I really mm-hmm. think the most, and really where we're directing our attention is is focusing on policy reform.
3: Diana, you not only work in the US, but you work in other places as well, in Europe. So do you happen to know if there's any differences in terms of what the legal rights are of people in other countries versus here?
4: Yes, and the polyamory legal movement and the polyamory cultural movement is way further along in the United States than it is anywhere else. And one of the reasons that there's more of an emphasis in the US on needing rights as same-sex couples or rights as polyamorous people is that social welfare state issue that many people in other places and our colleagues in europe are not necessarily needing to find a marriage or domestic partnership type institution in order to get their benefits or to feel like they've got financial security that they need with their partners so in the us we see a much more robust community but at the same time there is a really vibrant community in germany for example where i lived for almost seven years and germany actually has a national proposal for a something called an extraordinarily long word, almost as long as my polycule stacked end to end, <laughs> is basically a responsibility community um, is the general meeting. And so with that, that would be that you could go get registered with any two, three, or four people and get rights that are really similar to marriage throughout all of Germany. And that's being proposed by a major political party in Germany and is likely to pass in the next year. That is absolutely world-changing. And one thing I thought was really interesting was that they used the same definition that Heath and I and our colleagues at Polyamory Legal Advocacy Coalition used in our plural domestic partnership laws. And that really brings together polyamory with this larger movement. And I think that's what's essential, that we realize that polyamorous people might feel like a marginalized community in some ways. But then if we add up that community with the 38 percent of American adults who are single and might want to form partnership kinds of relationships platonically with their best friend... And with the fact that more than half of American kids and many kids across the world are living in step-parent and blended families, that we realize that with all of those different communities, when we add them up, we're not in the minority. We're actually the vast majority of American adults. And so that gives us political power when we think about how we can really push forward this idea of valuing all families and allowing people to make the caretaking relationships that they want and desire. And that is a movement that I think is really worldwide. We've seen that in South America. We've been seeing that with laws in Cuba that have passed. We're seeing that with this movement in Germany. And so while there isn't as much of an organized, explicitly polyamorous movement, there are movements for being able to define family differently. Because as there's less of a coercion from church and capitalism to be in a particular kind of family institution, more and more of us are doing something beyond the nuclear family. And I think that's a really important worldwide movement.
2: Thank you so much for saying that. I do think such an important part of this is the expansion of it, that these things are not just for this little collection of weirdos over in the corner, that I think sometimes people who maybe are more mainstream can perceive it as, but like so much of this expands to all of us, you know, so much of us, like you were saying don't necessarily want to receive just the kind of handed down state-sponsored form of relationship or family or whatever. And it seems to not work for so many of us. So I really appreciate you saying that.
0: I think it's a a potentially interesting point to talk about how fast support for this movement might go, right? We know with the LGBT movement, support for non-monogamy or for support for LGBT relationships increased about 1% per year. And looking at the numbers in terms of the support for non-monogamy, it looks like we're approximately the late 90s compared uh, to the LGBT movement to where there's about just under 30% of people who uh, indicate that they're supportive of non-monogamous relationships. But I think it's incredibly important that there's this latent interest gap where a third of Americans indicate that their preferred relationship structure is something other than strict monogamy and only 5% of people are currently engaging in non-monogamy. So it's really interesting to me to think how this might be similar to the same-sex marriage movement and the progress that we saw there, and if this will be faster or if it will be similar. I think it's 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 really interesting. As we're
1: coming toward the end, and we're gonna talk a little bit about how people can get involved, but first I wanted to check in, Diana, with something we mentioned back at the beginning, that you are the executive director of the Chosen Family Law Center which is a nonprofit that helps advocate for diverse family structures. Can you tell us a little bit more about you know, what that means? What, what are you doing with that? What's going on and how can that help people?
4: Thank you so much. I started my law firm in New York City in 2007, and that was a boutique law firm for LGBTQ people and polyamorous people and people in non-nuclear family structures like Platonic Partnership. And I started it partly because I saw a need in the legal community. And I was already active in the polyamory community and a family lawyer in legal services. And people would come to me and say, I'm getting sued for custody of my kid because I'm polyamorous. Who's the lawyer to talk to about that? And there wasn't one. And so I started my law practice to provide that kind of defensive support for polyamorous parents and particularly with child custody cases and do consulting on that nationwide, but then also helping people with the family formation pieces to give them stability that they deserve with, for example, co-parenting agreements for three people or more, um, making really clear distinctions about, you know, is your boyfriend is moving in a, a co-parent or a special uncle? Let's be really clear when we're making agreements about children or money or what it is that we're creating here or the alternative vows that we're creating. And then since that 2007 time, there wasn't also a legal services free office for people who couldn't afford to hire me. So I had a really extreme sliding scale um, and that became unwieldy because I, there was more pro bono demand than I could possibly handle. And so the pro bono department of my law firm became Chosen Family Law Center about five years ago. And with that, we're the first organization in the U.S. that provides actually direct free legal services, at this point only in New York State, to polyamorous families who may want to make a co-parenting agreement or share make a financial agreement, as well as other kinds of collective living groups, platonic co-parents, and we work with trans people and LGBTQ asylees fleeing persecution from other countries to get them green cards. So we do a lot of direct legal services within New York State and then also are involved with the legislative advocacy and creating resources as we're doing with Polyamory Legal Advocacy Coalition. So Polyamory Legal Advocacy Coalition is actually a project of Chosen Family Law Center as well as Harvard's LGBTQ Advocacy Clinic. And so that is one of the kinds of pieces of my work at Chosen Family Law Center is looking at that bigger legislative approach as well as trying to create more resources for lawyers as Heath has been working with the APA on resources for making sure that psychologists are more culturally competent. I'm involved with doing trainings for lawyers and trying to create resources so that it isn't just that you need to be able to afford to hire me for a consultation if you're having a child custody case for me to get involved, but to make that sustainable by making sure that we have the funding so that that's a kind of resource that should be available to everyone nationwide and that we can have some open source materials because it's it's actually a crisis that I think is the biggest issue of discrimination facing polyamorous people that I've seen in my practice. And everyone deserves to get that kind of support in that kind of moment of need as a parent. That's something that I would want and want for everyone. So that's the kind of work that we're doing at Chosen Family Law Center. And I'm really passionate about being able to do this kind of advocacy work that I didn't see out there in the world and that my community needs.
3: That's phenomenal. Thank you. Just to close out, I'm really interested and I know that our listeners are gonna wanna get involved. So what are some ways that people can get involved in all of these
0: movements? What can people be doing on the ground? Sure, yeah. There's uh, thankfully an increasing number of opportunities now. Um, In addition to uh, the Polyamory Legal Advocacy Coalition, uh, people can go onto Polyamory Legal Advocacy Coalition's website and there's steps for how to donate resources to our colleagues to support the legislative drafting. Uh, we work hand-in-hand with the Organization for Polyamory and Ethical Nonmonogamy. They offer support around grassroots organizing, coordination with local organizers. So either of those groups, in addition to the Chosen Family Law Center, if you're interested in supporting uh, the municipal policy work that's being done. Also, Diana mentioned that in terms of workplace policy and resources, Diane and I are also working with the Organization for Polyamory and Ethical Non-Monogamy to create resources, as we mentioned. And the Organization for Polyamory and Ethical Non-Monogamy also provides Discord servers uh, for people to, to develop community. There's one specifically for uh, inclusive workplaces as well that people can dive into. And if people are interested in supporting healthcare policy there's certainly you can follow the uh, APA Division 44 Committee on Consensual Non-Monogamy and all socials. Um, but also, if you are really interested in healthcare and the research component of it, please feel free to reach out to me if you're especially around financial support, because there's a number of projects that are launching or in the nascent stages around this. One that I'm excited to share about is that I've been given permission from UC Berkeley to launch what would be the first ever institute focusing on consensual non-monogamy or inclusive family and relationship diversity, and we need $200,000 to launch that project. So that's another tangible way that for listeners that might be interested in, in directly supporting work around healthcare and research.
2: Wonderful. This has been so inspiring to talk to the two of you. It's so inspiring to, I don't know, for all of us to be a part of this growing wave. And thank you so much for the work that you're doing. Yes, absolutely.
4: Uh, In terms of a way people can get involved, for people to follow along with Chosen Family Law Center. And I think it's important to think about how, as polyamorous people, we want to make sure our rights are protected. And so doing whatever you can to boost these small, scrappy organizations is always really helpful. We need financial support, of course, and tax-deductible donations, but also just following along and boosting our online campaigns, sharing our pride messaging on social media... If you live in a city that has a progressive city council and you'd be willing to be an activist in your local area, you can get in touch with us about us trying to pass municipal policies in your city if you'll be involved in trying to let your city council members know that that's important to you. And as Heath mentioned, the workplace consulting um, and DEI trainings that we do can be really helpful. And if you do work at a progressive employer, then you have the privilege of potentially being able to work at the kind of place that would be willing to make those kinds of changes. And as we saw with trans healthcare and the rights of same-sex partners, sometimes the progressive employers adopt those first. And then once one or two do, then they all feel like they need to. And then that becomes something that can become more normalized for more and more employees. And so as an employee, you may have the privilege to be able to push your employer. And we're happy to help you do that.
3: Thank you so much, everyone. This has been a really, really amazing conversation. Where can people find more of your work as well? And things like social media, if you have them, just let our listeners know.
4: Absolutely. I'm at at Diana Adams ESQ as an Esquire on all social media and welcome you to be part of the conversation and join the movement there. And you can find me at Dr. Checkinger
0: on all socials and I certainly welcome you finding me there. Excellent. Thank you so
3: much.
4: Thanks for this wonderful conversation. This is a lot of fun.
3: And for all of you out there, our question of the week, which is going to be on our Instagram stories is, what do you hope changes legally for all of us out there who are in non-traditional families or non-traditional relationships? So the best place to share your thoughts with other listeners is on this episode discussion channel in the Discord server, or you can post on our private Facebook group. You can get access to these groups and join our exclusive community by going to patreon.com Multiamory. In addition, you can share with us publicly on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Multiamory is created and produced by Jason Lindgren, Dedeker Winston, and me, Emily Matlack. Our production assistants are Rachel Schenewerk and Carson Collins. Our theme song is Forms I Know I Did by Josh and Anand from the Fractal Cave EP. The full transcript is available on this episode's page on multiamory.com.